So the gospel and the epistle reading for today put me in mind of uh, what is my favorite question of late. What does it mean to believe? The One of the interesting things about the tradition, which is founded on, well, all sorts of things. We have the councils, we have the scriptures, we have um, all sorts of sources of authority that uh, pass down the faith to us. One of the things that fascinates me is that embedded in that very tradition is an acknowledgement of the, the challenge of certain elements of that authority, the, 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 the limitations of that. Uh, for example, the, we often consider sell ourselves as Orthodox Christians the Church of the Seven Great Ecumenical Councils. And yet, at the time that these great ecumenical councils were being held, you had very important and influential church fathers actually saying, you know what, we shouldn't have any more councils. They just like cause more problems than they're worth. Similarly, our faith is uh, largely based on this collection of writings. And yet, we have all sorts of expressions in the scriptures themselves. We, we, I, growing up, I, I, we, we always focused on this one verse, you know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for proof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. It's a great verse in Timothy, uh, and, and it is referring to the power and the value and the importance and the inspiration of scripture. But at the same time, you also have stuff in there where Peter is saying about you know, Paul writes some things in his letters that are difficult to understand and that people kind of twist and, and bend and, 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 and kind of get wrong. Or you have Paul himself saying of his critics, they, they say, yeah, yeah, Paul, you know, he's really weighty and, and he sounds great and, and, and powerful and dangerous and, and even angry at times in his letters. But when he comes, he's just kind of a pushover. And Paul says, look, this is just because I love you guys. Uh, I, I'm, I'm only writing to correct you because I love you. And I, when I want to be able to come and rejoice in you, not come and be angry with you for, for all the things that you've gotten wrong. Uh, um, or uh, the Apostle John. Who, sa- who writes in his second letter, like, you know what? I, I'm writing this letter to you, but I'm really looking forward to getting together with you face to face, which is far better. So on the one hand, we have our tradition handed down to us in the councils and the scriptures and all the other sources of tradition. Uh, and, and it is, we understand it to be trustworthy worthy of trust, worthy of belief. But we also understand that there are frailties and even um, uh, limitations built into the way that it's been handed down to us. Uh, another, another ancient uh, father, Papias, uh, was, was uh, very interested in preserving the sayings of Christ because he felt like, you know, the the writing it all down is that something got lost in the process. 
And yeah, something does get lost in the process, but something also gets preserved. And here uh, in Matthew's gospel, uh, we have a, another example of this, where, where uh, even just of, of sort of the limitations of the gospels, They're, the gospels are collections of different accounts. Uh, and uh, I, this particular account of the centurion is both in Matthew, Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. But there are some significant differences between the two accounts, which to me, to my way of thinking, actually um, reinforces just how trustworthy the collected four Gospels are as we put them together as a combined uh, witness to what actually happened when Jesus was here. So here in, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus entered Capernaum, enters Capernaum, and a centurion comes to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. And Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. So in Matthew's rendition of the gospel, of this, of this, of this event, sorry, Matthew's gospel, when he's re rendering this event, it sounds a lot like the centurion is actually coming to Jesus and meeting with him face to face, and Jesus and the dialogue is taking place between them. But if we look at Luke's gospel, Luke, re referencing the same thing, says, "Now, when Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, uh, the uh, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus." He sent the elders of the Jews to, to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think yourself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. So in Luke's gospel, and Luke is, uh, is very clear in his, in his introduction, that he's gone around and interviewed eyewitnesses to try and make sure he gets the story straight and, and organized it into an orderly account. And on that note, it's interesting to see that both, both these uh, uh, events, the, the centurion in, in Matthew's uh, gospel and in Luke's gospel, this event comes right after the sermon uh, that Jesus preaches, or he teaches, like, reveals all his important teachings to, to his, his followers. Um, but, but in Luke's gospel, it, it seems pretty clear the centurion never actually met Jesus. And if you're coming from a certain, uh, a certain perspective, a, a very kind of rigid, you need to get ab everything absolutely right, uh, what I, I tend to call, from, from my day and age, kind of a videotape uh, version of history, or, or a Pixar, it didn't happen in modern internet parlance, uh, um, uh, then, then you, have, you have a problem. But in fact, I would suggest to you again that this is not actually a problem. In fact, this is really evidence that the Gospels are, in fact, eyewitness accounts, and they're reliable. It's just that they've been transmitted, in this case, uh, with Matthew and Mark, uh, sorry, Matthew and Luke, uh, they've been transmitted slightly differently. 
In Matthew's case, he's obviously heard the story from somewhere. Uh, possibly, if a modern scholars would say, well, there's some source called Q, maybe. Or maybe he just heard it. And, and what he heard was that there was a centurion who, who, who asked Jesus to come and heal his servant. So what do you conclude from that? Well, it sounds like the centurion is actually going to Jesus and talking to him directly. Luke, who has perhaps interviewed an eyewitness who actually was there when this has happened, is, maybe, is a lot more specific. The centurion does communicate with Jesus, which is exactly what Matthew is essentially putting down in his gospel. But he communicates with Jesus, first of all, by sending some references, some people who will vouch for this man being worthy of receiving the aid that he's requesting. Uh, namely the rulers, the elders of, of, of the people who, who say, of the Jewish people, who say, look, this guy actually built a synagogue for us. You should really come and help him. And then as Jesus is coming, because Jesus now starts coming, and where, which is rendered in Matthew's gospel as, yeah, I'll come. Uh, but now in Luke's gospel, Jesus just starts coming. Well, what, it's the same thing. He's, 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 he's communicating the same thing, whether that, by, that is by word or by deed. He's coming. He's on his way. In fact, he's almost at the doorstep of the centurion's house when uh, Luke says, he, the centurion sends friends out to him to say, look, please, look, you don't need to come under, my, under the roof of my house. Because he knows. He's, he's a Gentile. He's, he's not, uh, he's not a, a member of the Jewish people. Um, Jesus coming into his house will mean that Jesus then becomes unclean. Uh, he's, he's not, and he, he also feels like he's, he, he's clearly not worthy for Jesus even to come under the roof of his house. Which we have, again, that expression in both of the Gospels, and and so uh, so they're they're on the one hand, yeah, they're they're coming. The story is coming from different sources. It comes across slightly differently, but it's the same story. It's very clearly true to what actually happened. I mean, I think about it in terms of my own sermons too, right? I'll tell you a story. Uh, tell you the story. Uh, of because because I, I want to tell it actually I wanted to tell it later in the sermon but I'll tell it now uh, of Saint John uh, of Saint John Maximovich Saint John of Shanghai our patron yeah he he as I as I mentioned uh, yesterday he had this orphanage in Shanghai it started with eight eight children and grew to like over three thousand and he's he's just trying to get enough food to to feed all of these children uh, and the 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 um the person who's helping him to run the orphanage i, th I think it was a, a a kind of a, a matronal figure uh she was fairly strict uh and uh, but she was also it must have been pretty frustrating to run this place on a shoestring with three thousand kids running around right uh and and so at one point she complains to saint john's like look i, I can't even go on like this we can't do this because I, I don't even have anything to feed the children for breakfast. I, I, St. John says, well, what, what, do you, what do you want? What do you need? Because, I mean, I'm sure what he's thinking is, these kids need a place. They need somebody to look after them. We're their only hope. If not us, what happens? Uh, that, and, and this is what God has called us to do. Is he, I'm sure he didn't set out to do this. Uh, it seems like it just kind of happened. More and more kids were, were needy, and so he took them in. 
And so she says, well, you know, you know, even if I could just give them some oatmeal for breakfast, that, that would be something. And so St. John goes up, upstairs to his room in, in, in the building, and you, she hears this, this loud uh, uh, praying and prostrations, and like for a long time, there's this praying, prostrations, and then this person comes to the door saying, I've got this uh, delivery truck. It's like full of extra oatmeal that we, we really didn't need. And we were wondering, like, here you have some kids here. Maybe you could use it? And she's, uh, yeah, we could totally use it. And then they start bringing in bag after bag after bag after bag of oatmeal. And, and you know, St. John comes down and just looks at her in kind of, you know, maybe a slightly rebuking sort of way. Because uh, he knew, he knew God was going to provide. How did he know? Well, I want to get to that, but the um, so so it's something akin to what the centurion is saying to Jesus here, because he says, "Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but just speak a word, my servant will 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 be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers unto me under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus hears this, he marvels." He's totally astonished and says to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus says to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed from that same hour. So here you have somebody who is not of the Jewish people. He's, he's obviously a friend of the Jewish people. He built them a synagogue. Um, but he's, he's not one of them. And yet he has a spiritual insight that Jesus has not seen anywhere, not even in Israel. Not even in the people that God shows for himself and have trained through all these generations has Jesus seen faith and understanding like this. How did he get this? Well, he got this from experience. So, on the one hand, our faith comes down to us from, well, testimony, witness. Uh, It's a multitude of witnesses, and that's important. That's actually one of the things that makes it clear that it's true and reliable and, and trustworthy. Um, and he, even the slight variations are interesting. Like Matthew, uh, Matthew is, is writing, he's a Jew writing to the Jews. And what does he emphasize? He, like this bit here that we just read in Matthew's gospel isn't in Luke. Luke is a Gentile who is the only Gentile author of the, of the New Testament scriptures. And, and he, his focus is, is more on the centurion and his faith. But, but he doesn't actually have this condemnation of the Jewish people that Matthew works into his gospel. Why is that? Well, when you tell a story, you're, if you're going to be, tell a true story and get that truth across to an audience, your audience matters. 
who you're telling it to matters. And it's going to change how you tell the story. When I tell a story uh, um, to, to the kids, uh, it might be a slight phrase slightly differently and draw out different lessons than, I am, than when I'm telling it to adults. You know, that being said, a good story has certain, certain characteristics uh, um, and that, that you almost kind of have to do to be really true to it. So one of my favorite example or bad examples of this is there's a, there's a, uh, a Bible story book I really like because it's mostly just the scriptures and it tells the story of Samuel and it tells the story of the calling of Samuel and says, you know, God calls Samuel, Samuel goes to Eli and says, here I am. And Eli sends him back. And then in the Bible story book, it says, uh, it summarizes, like it skips a bit so it can fit everything onto one page. <laughs> and so it says, and then God said this two more times and Samuel did the same thing. It's like, no, if you're telling the story, especially if you're telling it to kids, you have to do it three times because that's what happens. So God calls Samuel and Samuel gets up and goes to Eli again and says, here I am. And Eli says, oh, go to sleep. I didn't call you. And goes back. And then God calls Samuel a third time. And that, that part too is important to get it true. I'm sorry. Now I'm just digressing a little. Just uh, Storytelling is important. How we tell stories is important. But you can do it in a way, and, and to be fair to the, to the, you know, DK Bible storybook, they're, they're at least being fair and true to the underlying message. They just missed a bit of that in the storytelling. So, so but here, the second stream is, is uh, of, of kind of how, uh, or maybe not even second, it's kind of the foundational of, of all of this, what has come down to us which is the centurion's experience of reality. He knows that as somebody with authority, and he sees that same authority in Jesus, as someone with authority, all he has to do is say to one of his soldiers, go, and he goes, or do this, and he does it. Because that's how authority works. And he, seeing that same authority in Jesus, is absolutely confident, vetting, in fact, the life of his servant on this, that all Jesus has to do with his authority is simply speak the word and his servant will be healed. And so Jesus said, does. He says in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew renders it as him saying directly to the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. Luke renders the same thing, the same basic communication, the same reality uh, as, as um, uh, the, when the servants returned to the house, they found the servant who had been sick was well. This same reality we see also in the epistle reading today. And this is kind of the, the, the overlap between the epistle and the gospel is, or this kind of, this thematic overlap is kind of what led me to want to talk to about, about this. It's, it's like Paul is talking about the experience that Christians have, particularly Christians who were converts. 
uh, which most of, at that point, pretty much all of them were, right? There, there weren't any cradle Orthodox Christians in Paul's day. Uh, and so he's writing, writing to the Romans, uh, the church in Rome, I, I should say, and, and he's ta- ta- saying, you've been set free from sin. You were slaves of righteousness. And again, audience here matters. Everybody knows at the, in, in the ancient world what a slave is. You, you, if you're a slave, you're the one under authority. You're the one who people t- say, say to go and you go and, or do this and you do that because uh, that's your job as a slave. And in fact, in the ancient world, you can sell yourself into slavery. Uh, it, there's no, not, none of this like intrinsically lower class people idea in, in ancient slavery. It was, no, no, you, you, you could just down on your luck and you don't have enough money. So you sell yourself into slavery and then you just have to go and do <laughs> what other people tell you to do. Um, and so Paul is using this for, to, to describe their experience of sin. So he says, you were slaves of sin. And, in, and when you were slaves of sin, uh, uh, you presented the, your members uh, as, as slaves, so you're kind of selling yourself into slavery, as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. That's the experience. In fact, I would say that's our experience too. We can do this still, even as Christians. We can present ourselves as slaves to sin. And that's precisely what that experience is like. We find ourselves enslaved. We find ourselves unable to do anything other than what this lust or this uh, greed or this anger or this whatever sin fill in the blank is telling us to do. And worse yet, we find that it leads to more and more of whatever it was, or whatever the lawlessness is. That's our experience. But, Paul says, you have actually died to sin in Christ. Don't do this anymore. You can still do this, but don't do it. In fact, you now have volition in Christ. You now have the ability to simply say, and instead of presenting your bodies and your members as slaves to sin, you can and should present your bodies as slaves to righteousness. And what does he say about this? He says, what fruit, what we heard, the, the um, uh, American Standard Version or whatever it was that was read earlier, renders it benefits, but I, I like fruit better here. He says, what fruit did you have then in the things which, of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. I mean, if you think about it, that lawlessness, that lust, that whatever, whatever sin that, is, that, is, that we are offering, it to, offering, that offering ourselves to, our experience is precisely that it kills us. It might not literally kill us, but it deadens us. It makes us unable to appreciate anything other than the thing that we're enslaved to. That's the fruit. And the reason I like the word fruit is because Jesus makes it really clear. By your fruits, you will know. By the fruit that you see, you will know whether something is good and of God or whether something is destructive and of 
the devil, of Satan, of the world, uh, that, that will lead you down to destruction and death. And so he says, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves to God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our faith is rooted and grounded in the collective experience of all those who have tried to take Jesus' teachings and put them into practice. That's what the church is. It is rooted and grounded in this collective experience of ours. It is something, on the one hand, that is passed down to us in very weak, fragile pieces of paper, in, in the, the, the very flawed ecumenical councils, one of which, uh, uh, the Fourth Ecumenical Council, where there was a riot. Uh, and yet, we see God working, as Paul says, through our own human weakness to reveal in and through that weakness His strength at work in us. And this is what, this is the experiential reality that all of this it is rooted and grounded and in and confirmed by on an ongoing basis. As we take Jesus' teachings and we put them into practice, we find ourselves set free from the law of sin and death. We find ourselves with the ability to say no to sin. You know, we might not always choose to do that. We might sometimes choose to present ourselves back again as slaves to, righteousness, to unrighteousness. Uh, there's, there's, there's habit there that needs to be broken. But it is, it is a habit, it is not a necessity. It might feel like it, but the reality is that we have been set free from sin and, and that as we offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness, that we have life. We have life in its fullness, in its richness. We, we are no longer dead. And we can experience and, and enjoy the reality that is life in Christ. That the, the very life that we were made for. Someone, as you know, most of us here are converts. Someone said to me once, you know, as a Christian, I feel a whole lot worse about myself than I did when I wasn't a Christian. But, he said, at the same time, I feel joy. I feel a worth, uh, a, a sense of meaning and purpose that I never felt when I wasn't a Christian. Uh, when, I wasn't, when, I, when I didn't care, and it's like, well, I, I didn't feel bad about anything that I was doing or saying because there was no analysis. There was no self, you know, there was no, no um, uh, self-condemnation. There was no confession. There was no, none of that. He's like, well, I, I'm mostly a pretty good person, except why is the world just not working properly? Why is everything so messed up? Why is it so meaningless and dry and dead? And so his experience when he became a Christian was that, okay, yeah, now I know. I'm messing up left, right, and center. I'm a part of the problem. And this is, this is 
this is exactly what needs to be addressed. And it's challenging and difficult and, 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 and frustrating. And yet, that process, that work, leads to a sense of meaning and purpose and love and fulfillment and joy so that I have something now that is far better than the comfortable life of before. This is the reality that has been handed down to us. This is the reality that we experience day in and day out as we follow Christ. And with the centurion, we can say, we can have that faith. We can have that understanding that St. John had, that as we offer our whole life to Christ, as we do what he calls us to do, he will provide everything that we need. And we don't have to worry about it. We do have to pray. We do have to seek God. We, there, there is work. But we ultimately know that God is at work in all things for our good as we love him and are called and act as those called according to his purpose. And so we can rest. You know, maybe not feeling quite so good about ourselves as before. Hopefully not, maybe. Uh, but feeling the joy of the faith that we have in the goodness and the provision of God, to whom be glory now and ever and ages of ages.